So last time, uh, we started the ministry of Jesus. And we began that, um, if you remember, obviously we dealt with His preaching. And I wanted you all to see the fact that Jesus was uh, the greatest preacher who ever was. And He was so because He was mightily anointed by the Spirit of God. And if you remember, we looked at uh, one of those passages, John chapter 3, where we saw that Jesus and He alone is the one who has the Spirit without measure, who's given the Spirit without measure. But what I, what I want you to see as we, as we deal a couple more times here with the ministry of Jesus is that that anointing of the Spirit, while yes, His, his powerful preaching was due to the fact that He was anointed with the Spirit, but all of His ministry, all that He did, He did by anointing of the Spirit. And that He was empowered by the Spirit. And all of His ministry can be summed up by that reality. So I want you to actually see a passage here that is a, a God-inspired summation of the ministry of Jesus. It's Acts chapter 10. Now you've probably heard me quote this passage a fair number of times. The, the longer you are around, you'll realize I have like 10 favorite verses and I just, I quote them all the time. So, th this is one of them. Acts chapter 10, again, th th just something to take note of here, right? If you or I sat down and someone said, write me a sentence of what you think Jesus' ministry was, we might write all kinds of different things. Um, and maybe none of them are necessarily wrong. But if we want to know, what does God want us to know about the ministry of Jesus? How does God want to summarize the ministry of Jesus? This is it. I mean, this is in the scriptures. God, God I mean, Peter, Peter preached these words. Luke wrote these words. But these are God's words. This is what God wants us to know about the ministry of Jesus. So we're going to start in verse 34, Acts 10, 34. Peter has now gone to the house of Cornelius. And here he's going to speak a little bit about Christ. So starting in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Now look, this is what he says. Here's the summation. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I'm going to use this verse for the next two messages, basically as our starting point for the next two messages, because it pretty well sums up everything that I want to say. One, we have clear indication that the entire ministry of Jesus is one that was enacted and done by empowerment from the Holy Spirit. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's the starting point for Peter in terms of Jesus' ministry. 
Number two is ministry is characterized as going about doing good. It's the second thing. Third thing, in addition to that, he performed all kinds of miracles. Peter says it here, healing all oppressed by the devil. And lastly, he gives us the reason. God was with him. Now, I'm not sure you can find in the Bible any clearer summary of the ministry of Jesus than, than this text. But what I want to do a little bit is explain to you what I'm going to do over the next couple of messages here and why I'm going to do it that way because it, it, it kind of requires a little bit of explanation of the text. So my plan is to do two more messages on the ministry of Jesus. Now, obviously, we could have done a ton of these because there's a lot of ministry to cover, but, but I'm trying to do something here where we're kind of seeing the whole life of Christ in broad scope. So I'm only going to do two more messages on the ministry of Jesus um, before we move on you know, to other, other, the, the, the later portion of His life. The first one, so this is today, the first one that I want to do is, has to do with the point that Peter makes about Jesus going about doing good. And I'm gonna, I'm wanna, I want to call this Jesus' works, His good works. I, I want us to see Jesus as the example of someone who lived a life of good works, a life of constantly doing what is good. So that's what we're going to deal with today. The second thing, the following message, a couple weeks, um, is I want to deal with His miracles. Now typically we might think, if you think works, you might immediately think miracles. And that's okay because works, you know, miracles are part of Jesus' works. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I want us to see them kind of separately because I think Peter is wanting us to, to see them as two distinct aspects of Jesus' ministry. Distinct, but of course related to one another. Look at, I mean, just how he, just how he sums it up here. He says, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Peter, I think, is seeing here two distinct things that are related to one another. But he's, he's not just telling us that, that the good that he did was the healing, but rather he's telling us he went around doing good and he did the healing and the miracles and these other things. And so he, Peter seems to be looking at two pieces here. That one, Jesus' ministry was one where he was constantly doing good. Brethren, we need to see that, in fact, in Jesus' ministry, if he had never done a single miraculous thing, his ministry would still be the greatest example that could ever be found of someone completely devoted to the Lord. And the second thing, of course, that he mentions here is that his ministry was filled with the miraculous. You know, John mentions this at the end of his, end of his gospel. He, he talks about seven miracles in the gospel and then comes to the end and he says, Jesus did so many other things, the books, all the books of the world couldn't contain them. So Jesus did miraculous things. The anointed Messiah, the promised Christ, the promised one who was going to come, he performed miraculous deeds because they testified of who he was. Jesus even tells them, if you don't believe for what I'm saying, believe because of the works. I mean, these works testified of who He was as the Christ. 
Peter says that he did what he did because God was with him. So that's how I want to break this up. Two more messages. We dealt with preaching already. I want to deal today with what I'm calling Jesus' works, his good works. And then we'll deal with miracles next time. So let's, uh, let's begin here with this. A spirit-empowered ministry that was filled with doing that which is good. Now, brethren, it is incredibly, incredibly important that we recognize the ministry of Jesus was not monkish. What I mean by that is Jesus was not, he didn't live his life as though he was trying to find a retreat away. He wasn't trying to just go to secluded places where he could just, you know, think and ponder about all kinds of theological ideas. That's not the way Jesus lived his life. It was a ministry. His life, his ministry was one where he was thoroughly practical in everything that he did. Always busy doing good, acting, doing, in, doing things. He's seeking always to transform the world into the kingdom of God. Brethren, his ministry was useful. That's a good word for this. It was useful. When the scriptures sum up his ministry by saying he went about doing good, Brethren, they don't say that Jesus just loved good. They say that He did good. Is it right to love good? It is right to love good. But what good is loving good if you don't do good? Jesus' ministry was one of doing good. He did things. The Scriptures don't say that He simply believed things. They say He did things. His ministry is just this unbroken chain of good works and virtues always being exercised. Everywhere you see him, he's just doing good. He's doing things. He's acting. And let me tell you something, brethren. This is a valuable thing for us to learn as Christians because many do prefer to live monkishly. They'd rather be alone. They'd rather retreat to secluded places. They'd rather live a life of rest than a life of good works. And the Christian church, brethren, is often content with believing right things than doing good deeds. We're content with believing, and, and we're not really that bothered if we're not doing. And you can just look around and you can see example after example, right? Most Christians will sit at home and they'll happily watch a pro-life documentary and they'll believe everything that it says but they won't do anything most will believe they assent to the fact sinners need the gospel to be saved <laughs> but how many are going to use their spare time and the free time to go tell sinners to do something and tell the sinners the gospel that they need to be saved Brethren, most believe that prayer is important to the Christian life, but to actually do it, to actually pray, to actually gather with the saints and pray and beseech the throne of heaven, sometimes it seems to be asking a bit much. Christians believe. They believe the words of Jesus when He talks about serving one another. He says, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done. 
But you know what, brethren? When it comes to doing, when it comes to doing that and sacrificing money, time, whatever it is, to serve one another, well, the, the, the pool of candidates seems to shrink quite a bit. And, and you guys can think of all kinds of examples. Um, but my point is to simply say this. The Lord is our example of one who is not simply concerned with believing right things, but he is concerned with doing good things. There's a huge distinction, brethren, a huge distinction between the two. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 10, now get the connection here. He tells us in Acts 10 that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and the result was that he went about doing good. Brethren, do not make a mistake about this. A Spirit-empowered life is a life of doing good. That's the result. If someone is going to be Spirit-empowered by God, they're going to do good. That's what they do. When Jesus speaks of the great judgment in Matthew 25, you recall the, the passage, right? Jesus puts the sheep and the goats, He separates them out. And the determination of who are the sheep and who are the goats lies firmly upon what people did and what they didn't do. What does Jesus tell them? You come over here. Why? Because you gave me water when I was thirsty. You clothed me when I was naked. I was in prison and you visited me. These are works, brethren. It's not just... They just believe things. They're doing things. And Jesus says, you come into my kingdom. Why? Because you did stuff. And you guys over here, you're going over here. Why? Because you didn't do it. It's, I mean, brethren, this is, this is huge. Christ. Now, hear what I'm saying here. Christ is significantly more concerned with us living lives of good works than he is concerned with us believing perfect doctrine. And I do not say that lightly because I think doctrine is very important. Doctrine is incredibly important. We have got, we got to believe true things, brother. I'm not saying, don't hear me saying that doctrine and truth is unimportant. But what I'm telling you is, when Jesus is there at the judgment, he does not say to them, you didn't understand this doctrine perfectly. He tells them, you didn't give me a cold drink of water. It's about what they did, brethren. Jesus doesn't speak like that about other things. On the final day, there will be people who believe the right things and have no good works to speak of. And Jesus will say to them, you depart from me into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. This is, the Lord is taking our works or our lack thereof very seriously. Spirit-empowered people, just like our Lord Jesus, they are those who go about doing good. And Christ did that. He did it perfectly, brethren. And what I want you to see is five aspects to Jesus' ministry that He did that were good. Good works. These might be, I don't know, but might be some of the things that are in Peter's mind as he thinks about Christ going about doing, doing good. So here they are. These are the five we're going to look at today. They'll be brief. 
but uh, these are the five. One, I don't have great names for these, so some of these are kind of long. The first one, he was constantly looking to bring people into the kingdom. Constantly looking to bring people into the kingdom. Number two, he gave himself to discipleship. Gave himself to discipling others. Three, he gave himself to prayer. Four, he came to serve. And five, he loved sacrificially. So these are, of course, just some of the good works of Christ. This is not all of them, of course, but these are ones that are just, they're just really worthy of our consideration. So, this first one, constantly looking to bring people into the kingdom. If you just consider Jesus' own testimony about himself, look with me at Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verse 10. This is Jesus' own testimony about himself. 19, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It doesn't just say here that he came to save the lost. I mean, that might be enough in and of itself, right? The Son of Man came to save the lost. Amen. Praise the Lord. He came to save the lost. But brethren, he came to seek them out. To look for him in the dark places. Just like we sang, our mighty love, arrest that man. He's going after him. Paul gives a testimony of this as well. Agrees, 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Rather, he came into the world looking to save sinners. He didn't just happen upon this place. He came here for a purpose. Listen to these words. You can go there. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. I want to read 11 through 16. And I want you to tell me, brethren, this does not ring true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall, they shall lie down. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my people. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Brethren, 
our Lord Jesus Christ tells us that He is the good shepherd. He is the one that is going out. He says, I myself will search for them. I'm going to go after them. I'm going to look for them. I'm going to bring them back. I will bring them from the peoples. I will gather them. I will feed them. He's searching these people out, brethren. Jesus is constantly on a mission to build the kingdom of God and fill it with His people. In Luke 19, the, the verse we just read, Luke 19.10, that passage right there in Luke 19 is about a man named Zac Zacchaeus. And it's, it's a very interesting story. Jesus is on His way through Jericho, and that man Zacchaeus is there. And if you read the story, brethren, you can just tell. Jesus is there for Zacchaeus. That is what he is there for. He, he comes across Zacchaeus. He's up in, the, up in the tree, of course. And Jesus tells him, you come on down out of that tree. i got to stay at your house tonight. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, you just imagine someone doing that to you. Hey, I'm, i got to stay at your house tonight. You do. Jesus is looking for this man. And he ends up telling him later, salvation has come to this house. Brethren, he was looking for Zacchaeus, and he found him, and he went after him. You think of the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I want you to take notice of this real quick. Go to John chapter 4. So in John 4, verse 4, it says, And he, okay, well, let me go back. Actually, we'll go to verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and, and, and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now look what it says in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Well, brethren, we know full well that he did not have to pass through Samaria because he had no other options. In fact, the Jews would typically never go through Samaria. They'd purposely circle around it, and they would not want to go in the land. They didn't want to go in Samaria. Why does it say here that he had to go through Samaria? Well, brethren, because there was a woman there who was to meet him at a well, and he could not be late for that meeting. He was going, he had to go through Samaria because he's got to get to that woman because he's looking to bring her into the kingdom, her and her whole town. That's what he's doing there. That's why he's got to go through Samaria. He's chasing them down, brethren. He's chasing down people to bring them into the kingdom. And I, and, and I thought to myself, this is just incredibly encouraging when we think of our own salvation. But then you realize that the Lord sought you out. I mean, He sought you out. <laughs> Not because of anything in you. Was, you know, God tells the Israelites, I'm bringing you into this land, but don't you dare say it's because we're righteous or we did something or whatever. He says, I'm doing it because that's what I'm doing. I made a promise. And God... The Lord Jesus is searching us out, not because of something that we're worthy of, but simply because He loved sinners. And you think of it, brethren, where the Lord first met you on the road, so to speak. You're just walking along, going your own way, and the Lord sees you off in the distance, and He says, I'm going after Him. I'm going to go after Him, I'm going to go find Him, and... I'm bringing him in. Brethren, he went after you. 
And you may have had not even the slightest clue. I know I didn't. I was off living my own way. I didn't even believe in God. I didn't even believe in the Bible. thought this book was a fairy tale. And Jesus said, oh yeah, we'll see who's funny in a minute. We're going to transform this whole thing. You're going to be a preacher <laughs> of that book you think is foolish. Maybe you don't know when the Lord met you on the road. That's okay. We've got people like that in Scripture too. You remember those disciples on the road to Emmaus? They don't know that it's Jesus there walking with them until later on. They realize our hearts were burning within us. Well, maybe you didn't know when the Lord met you, but you realize at some point, hold on a second. I remember my heart was burning within me. Was I walking with the Lord Jesus? Was He there? Brethren, He sought you out. He sought you out. And Jesus is, you know, He tells, He first goes to these disciples, they're fishing, and He tells them, you come follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Well, the reason He could teach them how to be fishers of men is because Jesus Christ is the preeminent fisher of men, brethren. You think of that, you think of that analogy of, of fishing in the Bible. I, I, I first I started, I started writing this out, and I was using the analogy of how we fish now, and it would have still maybe worked, but then I thought, wait a second, that's not what fishing was like. They didn't throw a pole in the water with, with a string and they reel it up. Fishing was very different. You know what they did? They took a net and they threw it in the sea and then they drug it back in, hoping to catch some fish in there. And in that, brethren, there's purpose there. There's purpose in what you're doing. If there's no fish where you're throwing the net, you don't hang out there. You go find a different place where there's fish. There's no passivity. You don't just, you know, just lay your net on the water and you're just hoping and praying that a fish is going to jump in it. That's not how it was. That's not how, that's not how these people fished. They're throwing and they're dragging and they're throwing and they're dragging and they're throwing. I mean, this is just night and night and day and night and day. They're throwing a net and they're dragging a net, throwing a net, dragging. These people are at work. They're trying to catch fish. They're on a mission to catch some fish. And Jesus is constantly on a mission to catch men in his net. For the kingdom of God. Brother, and this is, this is a good work. This is a good work of the Lord Jesus. And we do well to follow Him in it. Second thing. He devoted Himself to discipling others. Again, brethren, this is intentional. Aaron had read this verse one time when we talked about discipleship. Mark 3.13 he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. This is intentional. Jesus is intentional in his discipleship. And this, this work of discipleship that we see Jesus doing in the scriptures, this, brethren, this is a lot more than teaching. Now, undoubtedly, he did teach. He taught his disciples, taught those around him. He did do that kind of thing. But it's a lot more than teaching. He lived life with these 12 men. They walked with Him, they sailed with Him, they climbed mountains with Him, they traveled with Him, they prayed with Him, they ate with Him, they, did, they slept with Him. Everything they did was with this man. Life lived with Him. He trained them up, not just words. It wasn't just theory for them. They saw it lived, brethren. And we see Him discipling in the Scriptures. He, he pulls the disciples aside and he explains to them more deeply his teaching, his parables. He explains to them. We see him pull them aside. He corrects them. He reproves them when their faith is lacking or when there's sin. 
We see Him bear with them in patience when they're all filled with pride, wondering who's the greatest. We see Him displaying what it means to serve by serving them. Again, this isn't just theory. They're seeing it. We see Him. He takes these disciples and He tells them, Look, now you go out and you preach. You go out. You cast out demons. You preach. You go to these cities. I'm coming behind you, but you go. He's giving them responsibility to do the things that they watched Him do. That's, that's discipleship, brethren. It's not just, let me just feed you a bunch of stuff and you just sit there. It's, look, I'm going to feed you a bunch and then you take it and you go do it. This is what He's teaching them to do. We see Him teaching them how to pray. This is important. When Christians, you know, a child is born, right? And, and they got to learn how to talk. It's very natural for them to talk. They want to make sounds. They want to do those things. A child's got to learn how to talk. Brethren, Christian comes into this new birth. It is very natural for them to want to talk to God and for them to talk to God. But brethren, there's a sense in which Christians should be taught how to pray. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. You see him. He comforts them. They become anxious when he says, I'm going away. And they're anxious and he comforts them. He's, he's, he's intentional, brother. He's constantly discipling and training and teaching, helping, encouraging, building up, rebuking, correcting, all these things. He's doing all these things for them. Brother, and discipleship is a lot more than a Sunday sermon. It's a lot more than a Sunday sermon. In fact, discipleship really isn't even a Sunday sermon. This is, this is not discipleship in the sense of what Scripture portrays as discipleship. This is just teaching. This is just, I'm just talking to you. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't discipleship as we see the Lord Jesus. Discipleship is way more than that. It's the kind of thing that God brings out in Deuteronomy. When He tells parents to do certain things with His children, with their children, this is what discipleship looks like. It's, it's you teach and you learn. When? Well, as you, you, know, you sit around in your house and you talk in your house. And then you walk along the way. And when you lie down, when you rise up. This this constant refrain of learning and teaching as we're doing this and as we're doing that. You know, we're changing our brakes. Let me call my, this brother over who I want to pour into. Help, you know, I'm going to show him how to change his brakes. We're going to talk about how his home life is. We're going to go, you know, the, the, some of you um, knew Pablo, but he, he, he exemplified this in a way that was just, it was encouraging to watch. He, he, would, he would bring people under his wing and begin to disciple them. And, and he'd go to the grocery store. On the way, he'd pick up a brother on the way to the grocery store and just talk with him on, on the car ride, take him to the grocery store, buy his food, and then drop him back off when he went back home. Things like this where he's just, he's just trying to live life with these, these other brothers and pour into them. That's what discipleship is like. Jesus committed himself to disciple these men, and those men committed themselves to be discipled by Jesus Christ. I don't know if you guys know this, but one of the in that culture, what would happen is you would have rabbis who would decide they're going to take a few disciples. And they would ask them to come follow them. And that was a normal thing. What Jesus did with the 
disciples wasn't necessarily an abnormal kind of thing during his day. That was, you'd have rabbis that would often ask people to come follow them and they would teach them. So Jesus is, is doing this thing where he is, he is a teacher in Israel. He's considered a rabbi by these people. And he goes to these men and he says, look, you come follow me. I'm going to teach you. You come follow me. I'm going to teach you how to do what, what, what I do, what God wants you to do. This is intentional, brother. And he, he committed himself to disciple them. And they looked at Jesus and they said, yep, we're following you. You teach us. You disciple us. Teach us all things. Brethren, we, we need to follow this pattern. Whether that is someone discipling another person, pouring into them, or whether that's a person being discipled. This is biblical. This is thoroughly biblical. This is a thoroughly biblical good work, brethren. We've got to give ourselves to it. This is something that we as a church from the very beginning have said, we are going to be about discipling. Those who are capable, disciple others. And those who are learning and needing to be discipled, you commit yourself to it. You be discipled. Why? Because in the end, you're supposed to be a disciple maker. You're all supposed to be disciple makers. If you can't make one yet, then be disciple so that you can make one. We're all supposed to be doing that work. This is a good work. Jesus did it. He exemplified it. And we need to follow him in it. Third thing. Jesus devoted himself to prayer. Now this, this is a good work. It may not seem like a good work in the same way that, you know, feeding the poor or preaching on the street or something like that might be considered a good work. But it is a good work when people give themselves to it. It's not a work that's often seen by men, but it's a good work in the eyes of God. And you read the scriptures, brethren, and you just cannot come out thinking anything other than Jesus' life was one entirely enwrapped in prayer. You, you just can't get anything else from that when you, read, when you read the Gospels. You see him all the time praying. He's praying at his baptism, Luke 3.21. He's going up on the mountains by himself to pray, Matthew 14. He's spending all night in prayer, Luke 6. He's going out early to pray, Mark 1. He's slipping away by himself to pray, Luke 5. He's praying in Gethsemane, Matthew 26. He's praying over children, Matthew 19. He prays for Peter's faith, Luke 22. He prays for all the believers, John 17. Brother, the man's life is so saturated with prayer it is the, get this, it is the only thing in all the Bible that the disciples said, teach us how to do that. When Jesus sent them out to go cast out demons, they didn't turn around for a second and go, wait a second, how do we do that? No discussion of it. You just go out and cast out demons. All right, we're going out, casting out demons. He tells them, you go out and preach. There's no discussion of, well, Lord, teach us a method, teach us techniques. How do we do this? They never asked them those kind of things. But when it came to prayer, they knew we need to learn how to get a hold of God. You better teach us how to do that, Lord. Teach us how to do it. They knew what Jesus says in John 11. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. They knew that Jesus Christ had the ear of his Father. And they wanted to know, how do you do that? Lord, how do we get a hold of God? Teach us how to pray, Lord. Jesus was the great intercessor of men 
And when it comes to this good work, brethren, his life was filled with it. Filled with it. Everywhere you look, he's praying. He's given himself to prayer, to communion with his Father. And look, I, there's a text that I really like. 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 8, verse 7. It has nothing to do with prayer. Okay? <laughs> it actually has to do with giving. But Paul says, see that you excel in this grace also. And I'll tell you right now, you apply that pretty much anything you want. What we want, brethren, is you want to see that you excel in this also. That you excel in prayer. That you give yourself to that good work. Brethren, you've got to give yourself to it. It is not easy. It's a good work. It's a hard work. But brethren, if you want to draw near to the Lord, you have got to give yourself to it. Individual prayer, prayer with the church, you've got to give yourself to it. Number four. Jesus was a servant of others. He served others. Again, he testifies of himself. Let's go look at this. Matthew 20. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is his testimony of himself. He says, I did not come to be served. Well, he had a right to be served, did he not? King of the universe, serve me. <laughs> Do we not say that he is worthy of worship? Is the Lord Jesus not worthy of service? You better believe he is. And yet he says, I did not come here to be served. I came here to serve. What an example, brethren. In the same passage, he's, he's teaching his disciples, right? This is how you ought to be with one another. The Gentiles, what do they do? Well, they lord it over one another. They're trying to rule over each other. And he tells them, that is not what it is going to be for my people. In fact, you all want to be great, right? Well, let me tell you how you be great. You be a slave. That's how you be great. The greatest one is the lowest slave in Jesus' mind. The greatest one is the weakest servant. That's how Christ speaks. That's what he wants them to see. You want to be first? You got to be the lowest servant. That's how you do it. And again, Jesus sets for us the greatest example of what this looks like. I want you to consider with me a passage here. John chapter 13. Very, very familiar passage, of course, but... John 13, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. I want to read verses 1 through 5. John 13, 1 through 5. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them 
with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is an astounding thing. You read this in the Bible, brethren, this ought to be an astounding thing to, to behold. You've got to recognize in the culture there, the only people that came and washed your feet were the servants, slaves of the house. That's who washed your feet. You go to someone's house, you want to take your sandals off, clean your feet, enter the house, servant comes and he cleans your feet for you. Brethren, Jesus is doing something here. The creator of the universe. The creator of all things. God in the flesh is doing the work of a slave. He's doing the work of a servant here. It is astounding, brethren. It's astounding to think that it says here that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and immediately the first thing that we see Jesus do is take the disciples feet into his hands God had given all things into Christ's hands and Christ takes their feet into his hands brethren this is an astounding sight there can be no greater example of service than the Lord Jesus Christ because there is no greater example of one who was so high and exalted and took such a lowly position. There's no greater example than that. <clears throat> and too many are often averse to following Christ's example in this kind of thing to be servants. Oftentimes, brethren, we want a name, we want a title, we want a place, we want a reward, we want glory among men. They don't want to be a servant. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Here's what He says to them. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. And we might take that statement and apply it here in a little bit of a different way and say something like this. How can you be a servant of others when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, brethren, when we are acting like the Pharisees and we love the glory that comes from men, more than the glory that comes from God. We will not be a servant as the Lord Jesus was a servant. But you know what is said, and, and brethren, may it be said of us, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. <laughs> well done, good and faithful servant. In the end, you want to be a servant. I mean, we talk about being kings, we talk about reigning with Christ, we talk about all that, and that's all biblical, brethren, that's biblical. But I'm telling you right now, brethren, the thing that has got to be before your mind if you are wanting to walk as Christ is you have got to think of yourself as a servant. You've got to think of yourself as that. I know there's this kind of running joke, right? That I don't like when people say pastor. But let me tell you something. You know what? Because Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says to them, this is how you ought to consider us as servants of Christ. He's talking about the ministers of the gospel. Well, there's a reason why we ought to refrain from, oh, give me the title, give me the name. 
you know, get, call me this, call me that. No, you just call me brother. You call me Nick. Call me servant. I'm a servant, brother. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. You guys are servants of God. Think of yourself as that. Don't look for a name. Don't look for a reward. Don't look for a title. Don't look for glory among men. Brother, be a servant. You want to be great? You be a servant. Last thing here. Somewhat related to service, but a bit different, of course. This work of Christ that he loved sacrificially. And I think of Jesus going about doing good. This, this is the first one that I thought of. This is something that is just preeminent in my mind. This is the chief good among all other goods of the Lord Jesus. The fact that he loved sacrificially. Listen, he says in John 15, you can look at this, John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, to love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this is exactly the kind of thing that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Brethren, no, he says, no greater love. You want the pinnacle of it? It is laying down your life for your friends. And brethren, even Jesus says, no greater love is that. And I'm going to tell you right now, you want to know what a greater love is than laying down your life for your friends? How about laying down your life for your enemies? How about that? How about Paul says, look it, Jesus Christ didn't die for any righteous man. He died for a bunch of sinners. A bunch of wretches. Jesus Christ took a bunch of wretches and he made them his own people. And he died for them. He sacrificed everything in his love. Brother, you're talking about sacrifice. What are the things that we don't want to sacrifice? We don't want to sacrifice our time. We don't want to sacrifice our resources, money, whatever it is that we have. We don't want to sacrifice our sleep. Jesus sacrificed all of that. Look at his ministry. He sacrificed everything. His time. I mean, I don't know how much resources he had. Not very much. But, but whatever he had, he sacrificed all of it, brethren. He sacrificed everything all the way down to his own life. The man had nothing left to give to people. And this is Paul's reference point when it comes to how we are called to live. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at this. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. There's some, there's some verses in the Bible that I'm telling you right now, if, if you want to have a real simple summary of, okay, I'm a Christian, I want to honor God, what do I do? Well, if you just memorize this and you try to live it, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I mean, how simple and yet how profound is this statement for God? For God's people. If we want to imitate God, what does He tell us to do? Walk in love. How? As Christ loved us. This is the example. This is always the example in Scripture. 
What are you supposed to do? Do what Christ did. You, you walk in love. Okay, well, what does that look like? You do what Christ did. You walk in it as He walked in it. You look at Him and you do what He did. Whatever He did, you do. You follow Him. He did this, you do that. He did this, you do that. You walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Paul calls it a offering and a sacrifice. The whole thing is a sacrifice, brethren. He sacrificed everything for His people. This is sacrificial love. A love that gives itself up for others. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives summations, right, of love. What are some of the things that he says? Love is what? Huh? Kind? Patient? Okay, what's patience? Long-suffering, right? But it's, it's what? It's not being selfish with your time. This is sacrifice, brother. What are some other things he lists in that? Okay. Yep. Endures all things. Believes all things. Not boastful. One of the things I think of, does not insist on its own way. I mean, talk about that. Okay, sacrifice. I want this, and I'm not going to insist that this happen. I'm going to not insist on my own way. Sacrifice. Do it the way this brother wants, or this sister wants. This is a, you know, he lists a lot of things there, but... But then this, this is self-sacrificial love on the part of Jesus Christ. And this is the supreme good work because, brethren, he did it to a degree that it cannot be improved upon. You see, every time we might try to love someone sacrificially, give for them, serve them, whatever we might do, right? We wanna, I wanna love this brother and I wanna sacrifice for him and I wanna, I wanna serve him. Well, we may find out afterward, right? Ah, oh, man, there's a way I could have I could have loved him more. I could have served him better. I could have done this. I could have done that. There's always ways that we can, we can look at how we love and serve one another and realize, man, I still wasn't, you know. There, the, brethren, there's sin in all that we do. There is. There, there's, still, there's still sin there, right? And so however we might sacrifice and love one another, there's always places where we might grow and do it better. But you look at the Lord Jesus, there's nothing else there. He reached the pinnacle, brethren. He sacrificed everything. What else can be done in terms of sacrificial love on the part of Jesus Christ? John 13, we read it. He says, He loved His own who were in the world, and He loved them to the end. To the end, brethren. He loved them to the end. Everything that you could possibly think of of what it means to sacrifice and love another, Jesus did. It can't be improved upon. You know, we sing that song. What more can He say than to you He has said? Brethren, what more can He do than for you He has done? He can't do anything more for you than what He has done. He's done everything for you. Sacrificial love. And if we want to follow the Lord Jesus, we want to be those that are going about doing good. Lives of good works. Brethren, you keep this before your mind. You keep before your mind 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all. Listen, above all. What does that mean? What does above all mean? All huh? All of it. Well, all of it. But it's, it's a statement about supremacy, right? You, you find it in Colossians too. There's a big list of virtues, good works. Here's what you do. Boom, 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 boom. And then he says, above all. It's like they're trying to get you to see. Guys, do these things. This is good. But above everything, here's what you do. Keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, Peter says, keep loving one another 
earnestly. This is how you will walk as Christ. Now, just sort of in closing here, I want to bring out one more text. We read in the beginning a passage in Acts 10 testifies of Jesus Christ that He went about doing good. And He's our example, of course. An example to follow, right? Not just an example to look at. Oh, wow, just did good. What about doing good? Wow, what an example. It's an example for, for us to follow. Not just to see, but to follow and to do as He did. But this idea of doing good is brought back out in the New Testament again. And it's brought out in a context of what we are to do. I don't know if, if it's coming anybody's anybody got it in their mind of a, a text maybe that I want us to see? Go to Galatians 6. Paul brings this out in Galatians 6. Let's look at 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, here we have the exhortation from Paul to be like Christ. Now, he doesn't necessarily say that here. But we have this idea already embedded, right? What have, we all, what have we been looking at this whole time? Christ had a ministry where he was going about doing good. He's constantly doing this. This is the idea in Paul's mind. We have doing good in our mind from the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have this call to live as he lived. To not grow weary in doing good. Why? Because Christ didn't grow weary in doing good. He didn't reach a point, brethren, where he said, I am fed up with this doing good thing. I'm going to do my own thing now. Always serving you people. This is not how Christ lived. He did not grow weary in doing good. He did good all the way to the end. That we ought to look. He says, in due season you will reap if you don't give up. But then there's a sense into which you, you, you ought to do what you do, recognizing that it's not going to be in vain. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians, does he not? The labor you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're going to reap in due season. Jesus Christ reaped. He reaped quite a bit. And we're, we're, we get that. He gained an inheritance that He passes on to us. Brethren, the call is for us to do good. To do good to all. Especially to your brethren in the church. Brethren, the call for you as a Christian, I mean, how simple is it? Someone just says to you, you say, what do I do? They say, do good. <laughs> Very simple, right? But that's, that's a call for us as, as those of maturity to say, okay, I got to think of what is good and then do it. I got to find what's good and then I'm going to do it. Here's my brethren. I want to do good to them. I got to work on doing good. Do good things. Do good work. Serve them. Love them. Especially to the brethren in the church. Brethren, whatever is good, do it. Just do it. Just whatever's good, do it. You think of, I think of Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I mean, you think about that in this context. Brethren, doing good. 
You find something that's good for your people and you do it. You do it for the glory of God. You do it for their good. I want it to be said of us, brethren, that we went about doing good. We want to be like the Lord Jesus in this. Let me pray.